Hey, so this is the Home and Garden Leaders yep. Podcast. I'm sitting here with Max Haino from mucom.com. And Max, it would be good if you could sort of introduce yourself. So how did you get into the company? What was your personal background before getting into working at the company? And then we'll just kind of take things from there. Got it. So I'm one of the co-founders of the company. That's how I got into things. Maybe just 30, 40 seconds on my background. I really don't have a background in market finance, finance degree. And I worked at various investment banks, private equity. I was the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, for half a year. And then mm -hmm. instead of sort of starting to build a career in, in management consulting, then we founded Muke. And maybe also useful, a couple sentences about Muke. I'll try to make it short and sort of keep it nice and snappy. But Muke is, I guess the jargon term would be, it's an end-to-end -end convenience first marketplace for secondhand furniture. Mm -hmm. And we handle the whole sales process of a furniture. We handle it from pickup at the seller's home or office or warehouse. If it's a private consumer or a company, we handle the whole process. So we pick the furniture up at the seller's convenience. We inspect them, we clean them up with X-Studio photos. We warehouse the furniture in-house, and then we market them both domestically and internationally. And once the furniture are sold, the earnings are then wired to them or they're transferred to the seller's account. So this is what we're trying to build here is sort of the most convenient, most modern way of selling furniture uh, that you no longer need for some reason. And obviously for buyers, we want to offer a modern, convenient shopping experience. You can buy second-hand furniture without the hassle of just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling on marketplaces or organizing transport, etc. So it works as any modern e-commerce store. You get the return, right? Payment options. This is a really interesting concept, actually. So what you're saying is that it is a marketplace. So you're not necessarily contacting suppliers. You're not really getting their inventory in your warehouse, but you're more so a marketplace where consumers can sell to each other, correct? Yes, but with the caveat of this being a full service marketplace. So what this means is that we, in fact, do take the inventory into our own warehouse. We just don't buy it up front. So we get a commission on the sale and we do work with quite a few suppliers, some retailers as well. So say if it's a supplier that has they want to get rid of or products that they are no longer have it in their selection, for example, this is a super easy way for them to offload that inventory and we take care of the selling process and the logistics so every product whether it's a consumer selling it or a company we take care of the transport we take those furniture into our warehouse we clean them up we take the photos we warehouse them so mm -hmm. this is to create as much value as we can for the seller because usually these are some of these are bulky furniture they take up a lot of physical uh, space so we try to alleviate that problem and take care of that instead makes sense gotcha okay what's the specific reasoning behind the specific strategy like i have some thoughts on this because i read a couple of books actually from uh, bcg as well partially but i just like to hear your thoughts on it because it's a really unique concept to an extent yeah oh totally and and this i mean furniture it is the only large consumer segment with the exception of cosmetics, where this end-to-end -end model isn't already operating at scale. Mm -hmm. This has been sold for cars. Kazoo is doing this, companies are doing this in the US. It's been sold for electronics. 
say another Finnish circular economy company, Swapi, is doing this for iPhones. Obviously, back market in France is doing this type of approach for electronics. And you have a lot of, lot of, lot of examples in the clothing segment that do mm-hmm. this exact same thing, be it Selby or Salando does a form of this. There are a lot of domestic players in every every country doing this in clothing. So furniture is the only one where this hasn't been done, this end-to-end model. And uh, we're, as far as I know, we're the only, or at least the first ones in Europe, scaling this concept. And mm-hmm. furniture, this is where a lot of value can be created for the seller, once again, because these objects, they take up a lot of space in your physical space, where you live or at your office. So it's a, it's a huge problem and a bottleneck for these sellers. And that's where we can create a lot of value. And we even see based on consumer research that this is where most of the value can be created. So sellers care about getting rid of the furniture they no longer want. They want to get rid of those quickly. And that's where we come in and we pick them up at your convenience. Yeah, it's with fashion specifically. I think it's very intuitive thing to an extent, right? Uh, for yeah. people to come up with this, I think with furniture, um, because it's a bit less fast paced, right? Because with fashion, you have like all these weird trends and they're there for oh, yeah. a couple months and then people don't want to have their clothes anymore. I think with furniture, this is also the case to an extent, right? Because there's trends that switch and it's pretty tricky to create them yourself consistently. So it does make sense to have a platform for that. Um, I really like this. Actually, it's a, <laughs> it's a very nice strategy you have in place. <laughs> it does come with its, it. It is not as scalable as just having, or you can scale it. Of course, it's scalable, but it is not. You can scale it as quickly as, say, a pure play SaaS or just a marketplace where, say, like eBay Kleinanzeigen or or Blocketor, these type of marketplaces in, in the Nordics or Celency, for example, in France. They can scale super quickly, but once mm-hmm. again, I think the value we're offering is different and in some cases it's superior, or at least I would hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think to an extent this also serves as a mode, right? Because it's not very easy to start to compete with you, Yeah, but it's also kind of a platform. It's very interesting, right? Because if you just have a website where you're connecting uh, buyers and sellers, and that's all there is to it, at least mm-hmm. in the beginning stages, it's quite easy to copy. But if there is uh, all this effort that has to be put in for someone and all this startup cost, all this work that needs to be done, it makes it actually a bit more attractive as a strategy, right? Because you actually have like there's actual protection right someone just can't just come in and do exactly what you're doing because it's really hard to replicate right oh yeah exactly exactly i mean on both both sort of strategies if you look at the sort of uh, digital only and this sort of ops heavier model both of them have their advantages and disadvantages but it's been working really good so far and uh, we have some super good feedback from dealers as well Gotcha. What I'm curious to know is, so obviously the reason why you got into it is quite clear because it just makes strategic sense, right? You're from BCG, so it does make sense. And then what were sort of some of the initial challenges that you had to overcome with this business? Yeah, I wouldn't say that all the challenges are solved in a a perfect way yet. But of course, like the first two years we, we created the company in the summer of 2019, And for the first year and a half, two years, almost, we were totally bootstrapped. So we had zero, zero, like extra cash. It was just, I put in like 5K of my own money, this type of stuff. And then then we had some business loans 
we were bootstrapped in the beginning and there it was really nice to see that it still grew sort of organically without this growth capital injection but of course when you're dealing with a totally new concept like this is not something that consumers it's not like opening up another restaurant people yeah. already know what it's all about so here the business model it's quite difficult to communicate the value in a short and snappy way from a marketing and awareness perspective because this this concept has never been been done in europe so people don't immediately grasp okay so what happens okay they come to my house they pick up my stuff what happens then so it's hard to crystallize and condense the value we're offering in one sort of snappy scalable marketing sort of a unique selling point that you can slap on a bunch of ads and scale it up that's one of the things and obviously it's the same with starting any business recruiting finding the new people obviously in this specific case logistics and how we handle those that's one of the more more difficult things to sort of solve everything we had to learn everything from the get-go how to clean and inspect furniture um, in a fairly large scale quite quickly how to take professional good studio photos basically on a conveyor belt style so that we can we can't have this one product for example because we can only sell it once we can't have a half a day photo shoot for that product and take super perfect pictures that we can sell them over and over and over again they have to be photographed once and the sort of quality of that product has to be communicated to a potential buyer. So we can spend more than a couple of minutes tops per product to photograph them. So, and all of this had to be sort of learned and it's it's been a super rewarding journey. But yeah, so that was one of the sort of tougher things was just growing it organically without a growth budget. But we've sensed a raised capital that has, BC capital that has sort of alleviated those pains. But once again, the moat we're trying to build, as you said, the logistics part of it being the sort of main driver of the moat, that's uh, one of the core challenges here. It's really interesting, yeah. Yeah, I also imagine it's quite difficult to market, right? Because you have, like normally what you can do is you can use like a 3D staging kind of setup. You can have a 3D model yep. of the product. You just put yep. it in there. So here it's it's quite interesting from like a systems point of view, uh, how does it solve actually? Because it's, yeah, it, it's a really tough one, right? Because mm. like if it's a sofa or whatever it is, right? It has to be moved. It has to be put in an attractive setting. There is, there's so many different pieces with this to make sure that it's actually attractive. So that's, that's very interesting, actually. Nice. We're always looking into various ways of doing that better just 3D models, for example, I guess with the photos we're already taking from different angles, theoretically, you could do a 3D model here, but there's definitely a quite a clear reason why furniture is sort of the laggard within the consumer segments of moving online from, from sort of brick and mortar uh, physical stores to, to online. All the other segments have moved there way more quicker and more aggressively and furniture is sort of lagging behind and I guess the core reason for that is that a lot of consumers still they want to see the product they want to see how it would look in in their physical space and that's why we we really have to take high quality pictures and make sure that we have all required info available for the buyer for these products yeah I also think there's like if you would have a 3d model but I think it's like maybe it's too hard to achieve but there's 
like there's apps uh, so i've seen this with some of our clients where you basically take a like it's a phone app right it gets installed connects to the camera and then it kind of puts the it estimates the sizing of everything yeah and it yeah. just puts the piece into place and then you can see on your phone sort of how it looks and then another thing that i've seen work as well is that people on a website they have a like a sizing toggle Right. So here's how much space you have that mm -hmm. is looking to be filled and then they can sort of move it kind of like on this diagram. Mm -hmm. um, and then it just gives them appropriate options for whatever sizing they have, which helps to an extent. Right. But there's obviously a consumer segment that just likes to buy from brick and mortar. I think it's the same with any kind of e-commerce. Right. But specifically oh, yeah. with furniture, because it's a visual thing. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So. How would you describe the current uh, situation of the company? After we took in the BC, we took in our sort of pre-seed round last year and now a, a bit of a larger seed round in the spring of this year. So we're sort of hearing from a VC perspective, we're sort of in between seed and series A rounds. So what we're trying to do is gearing up towards a series A. So that's one perspective to look at the sort of development of the company. That's where we are in from the VC perspective. Then mm -hmm. as I said, we started, we started in Finland with Helsinki being our headquarters. We expanded to Stockholm. And, and in terms of, so we're going to hit some 4.55 million revenue this year. We've sold some 20. 25,000 furniture, 5.5 uh, million euros in, in funding from these two uh, funding rounds from the venture capital funds. We have some 35, 40, 40 employees. And in terms of the vision and goal, what we want to, what we want to do is in the next five years is to become the market leader for secondhand furniture in Europe. It really scale this convenience model from the Nordics. We want to scale it to other parts of Europe as well. And to achieve this goal, we have a, we call it the four point secret. <laughs> Not so secret, yes. a master plan. So this is sort of a Elon Musk, Tesla ripoff uh, <laughs> as well. So what we're trying to, or the steps to achieve this goal are basically the following. The first one we've already talked a bit about, but we need to become the most efficient entity at moving furniture from point A to B uh, mm -hmm. through an interplay of operations and technology. Uh, of course, if you go on our site, muke.com, it looks sort of designy and I don't know if it looks flashy, but at least it looks like nice and tidy on the outside, but sort of in the background, there's a, like an operations engine worrying. So if um, some people look at us as a design or furniture company, but the truth is that we're a logistics and technology company behind the scenes. And that's sort of how we look at our, ourselves internally. The second point of the master plan is to gain the best understanding of market drivers or prices, trends, or opportunities through a systematic collection of data. And then we mm -hmm. want to use data in, in smart ways to improve our offering. As you already alluded to, there are some trends, there are different types of consumer cohorts that prefer different types of furniture uh, and interior design. And what we really do is we collect what type of users buy 
what type of furniture, how quickly those sell, at what price point, what sort of brands, what style category, which market do people in Finland buy more from Sweden or vice versa. So we, we try to collect as much data there and, and sort of want to use that in nice ways to improve the offering. Also, we of course need to create a sort of unparalleled shopping experience for buyers and a really smooth journey for the sellers to just uh, scale this in an efficient way whether the sellers are private consumers or businesses and simultaneously you talked about working with suppliers that's something that we've started doing now in the past four or five months and it's been really awesome to see that there's a huge sort of inbound interest for retailers just asset owners removing offices or even manufacturers okay they want to offload inventory that they don't currently need for mm-hmm. example and this is one way to to do it the fourth point of the of the plan is to then of course expand geographically and offer this service to more people so that's sort of the vision how we look at muc and what we how we see the goals currently and i can imagine because it's so heavy on the operations that there's a lot of scale economies as well eventually right where you find like a small thing and then the ripple effect of that uh, just saves so much cost in the long term as well so it's really interesting yeah because this is you must be moving like really high volume eventually right so there must be a lot of potential for that as well what i'm curious to understand is how you solve pricing so basically do you let the people who want to sell on your platform dictate what amount do they want do you give them recommendations or sort of how do you call this like guidance posts right or yep. how is it solved yeah that's that's also because that's one of the super interesting things that's that's one of my sort of favorite things to work on and that work for pricing it's actually just now kicking up speed and that's something I'll be I'll be working on today like for for the rest of the days is looking at our pricing model when someone wants to sell a piece of furniture let's say if you're a consumer it's like a one two minute process click you you take a picture of the furniture and you answer like two three questions about it and then you get a price estimate from us within the hour usually and this price estimate it's it, we always give it as a range because there is quite a bit of ambiguity here as you know with any second hand say if i put a stool in front of you like and ask you how much is this worth that's really a super interesting and core question because the value of that second hand object it's going to be totally different for you and and someone who really wants that one who's been looking for that specific piece in that material that color whereas someone might see it as having negative value they just mm-hmm. want to get rid of it they would even pay to get rid of it so this is this is really where where the data and sort of what we're trying to learn internally comes in currently we have a a formula that gives us the pricing based on a few sort of core attributes about the furniture but we still have to give a price range For example, if you want to sell your sofa, say if it's a like mid-end sofa, we would communicate then to the seller that we're going to sell this sofa for 350 euros to 520 euros. And then mm-hmm. it also gives you an earnings range based on that. And the way we solve this is that we it comes into a warehouse. Once we validate that the condition is what the seller communicated it was, we clean it up if need be. Then once it's posted on the site, We obviously try to do all these things, for example, the, the cleaning and studio photos, 
So we presume that we can sell this furniture at a premium compared to, say, uh, for example, a uh, run-of-the-mill peer-to-peer marketplace. So we would place it at a certain initial price, and then we follow how many clicks uh, this piece is getting. And mm-hmm. within, uh, then during the sales process, the price can and will be lowered if it's not sold within a, within a couple of weeks. Then the price is lowered based on this price range that we're giving. But we still have a lot to learn there when it comes to the pricing. It can be done a lot better. It's worked quite well so far with this initial formula that we have, but there's a lot to solve here still and a lot of improvements on the way. So yeah, I guess it also depends on the needs of the seller to an extent as well, right? Because you totally. don't want to, like some people, they just want it sold fast because they need the money now or they want to have the money now for something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, And some people are a bit more patient, so they really want to maximize the value that they're getting out of the transaction. So I think that's also really, really interesting piece with this at the end of the day, right? Because it's like there's so many factors on the seller side, but also on the demand side, right? So it's yeah. matching those two variables that is probably, it sounds super interesting, honestly. I'm pretty, pretty excited actually for you because this sounds like it's a really nice strategy overall. Yeah, like that's how does scary. this put in place? I mean, there is, there is quite a bit of complexity here and super like, super super interesting problems to to work with or challenges rather and that's what the team is so excited for with both this sort of matching matching demand and supply seeing that okay if we take in too much of some type of furniture that doesn't sell then that's mm-hmm. got to be a prob- problem um, from an operations per- perspective for us and exactly what you said sellers they might have different needs maybe someone just wants to get rid of it Someone wants to get a lot of money, but they just don't want to do the hassle. So it's good for them that we take the piece and we do all these things to sort of increase the value of that furniture. And we we warehouse it and we can still get this nice earning for the seller. So there are a couple, couple of things here to juggle. But so far, we've seen that most of the value is created in, in us picking that furniture up and actually taking care of this whole sales process. Mm-hmm. Say if you're a student and you want to maximize your earnings and you're willing to sit on the sofa until you get exactly the 250 euros that you want for it, whatever the, your price may be, then you might be better off selling it on a peer-to-peer marketplace, of course. So it, it's not always a match for everyone. And then regarding the vision that you have, right, the four kind of steps, what would you say has prevented you so far from achieving it, right? It sounds like it's mainly a speed issue, but it would be would be really interesting to understand it as well. Yeah, it's um, quite a bit of things sort of coming together here. First factor is probably just some things just take time. We've had funding for a year and a half, so it, it's just going to take some time to tweak some things, figure some things out. And before we start to scale, we really want to know what we're scaling. For mm-hmm. example, when we expanded to, to Sweden, we didn't really do our homework in an optimal way, being fully transparent. For example, we've changed our whole operations model since expanding to Sweden. And that's that's also a challenging thing to change, say, for example, how everything is operated in the warehouse how we optimize our shelving, how we optimize the flow of the furniture into the warehouse, how we work with fulfillment, for example. Mm -hmm. And changing all of this 
while you have the in and out flow of furniture and you're scaling up, that becomes quite a bit of things to juggle there. So we want to make sure that we've nailed the sort of user experience mm-hmm. and at least to a sort of 80-20 degree. And we want to make sure that we know exactly what model we're scaling and we're getting there now. So our hope is and the target is to that we're able to expand sort of second half of 2023, the latest that we can start looking at uh, expanding beyond the Nordics. Yeah. And then one more addition here is also the recruitment part. So that's going to take us a couple of months to find the right people also when, say, if we want to expand somewhere else in Europe. So the talent talent needs to be there as well. But it's um, sort of a sum of a lot of parts here. And what would be an interesting story that you'd like to share? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there are multiple ones. And yeah. I guess the funniest ones are sort of these super early stage things. I mean, we're by no means patting ourselves on the shoulders that, yeah, we've made it. I mean, four or five million in revenue, that's still peanuts when it comes to market potential here. But so good so far. But when we started the company with my co-founder, Rickard, it was basically a, like two guys and a van type of show. And we put put together a like, <laughs> it was literally started in a, in a garage. So we rented a garage and started sourcing furniture and built a bit of a like home studio for the furniture and then we had one of our first first clients this was this was like a month in and we were they had ordered a sofa through our store that we'd we'd thrown together really really quickly on woocommerce and um we were going to deliver the sofa home to him and we had a a rented van and we were driving from the garage to to his home i think it was a saturday or something it was raining quite a bit and um, then at some point i noticed ricard was driving and i just looked like into the sort of storage because shit like the doors open back there (laughs) and then then we went to look at the sofa like one or two pillows were missing and then we had to drive back to pick up the so we found the two pillows on the way back to the garage and then luckily we had like two examples like two pieces of that exact same sofa so we just threw in the wet pillows into the garage and we took the sort of clean ones from the other sofa (laughs) then we delivered the sofa to the buyer he was super happy and we carried it inside and placed it in his in his living room and then we went back to clean the pillows that we picked up from the from the road and eventually sold that so fast well but yeah so, so looking back uh, yeah, luckily the sofa didn't fall out or yeah totally no accidents happened <laughs> yeah, totally. totally, yeah. that i haven't heard of that type of stuff happening anymore this year but it's always when when you're working with uh, operations and logistics there are always like funny things that can happen but that's that's one that i uh, sort of remember like half half vividly yeah yeah crazy yeah, I had a similar story recently with uh, Gustav. Like it's a person that we interviewed last for this podcast, actually. Yeah. Um, he also, like, he became the CEO of the company eventually. Uh, but some of the founders, uh, initially, they uh, were delivering the furniture themselves through all of Denmark. And they had, like, a bunch of orders to deliver at once because they didn't want to outsource it yet. And <laughs> basically, the guy was driving for like 12 hours straight 20 hours straight because they had like one day on the weekend where they would deliver everything oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> nothing happened there as well so it's uh yeah <laughs> it's 
pretty crazy. Okay, uh, yeah, and what they do as well, um, just because maybe this is valuable for you, maybe not, right? But um, mm. they also, like, they were able to lower their shipping costs because they initially had it outsourced for a little bit as well, from what I understand. And then yeah. they were handling the shipping themselves too. And if you have such a strong operational focus, it may make sense to do that here as well, right? Because it's, it's not massive, but I think they're getting like a 30, 33% savings on their shipping cost. So like once you have the volume, it really starts to add up, I think, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And that's why I'm going, so we're doing part of the deliveries or, or the bulk of the deliveries we're doing ourselves because our own sort of in-house fleet is, is driving around and picking up furniture as well. So we can sort of combine deliveries and pickups and, and optimize it from a route perspective and a time per visit perspective. So that's mm-hmm. something that works for us currently. And obviously we can take the whole shipping fee as without sort of giving it to an outsourcing part but yeah we're always looking at smart ways to sort of streamline it and if we can outsource something uh, and it's viable and, and smart from a unit economics perspective then we'll of course do it so and what, what company was uh, gustav working at my danish is not good um, i can send you the link later oh yeah please do because um, my danish is not like if i'm gonna pronounce it i'm just gonna butcher it a lot <laughs> Um, I Möbelkompagnet.dk or something like this. Uh, but yeah, I'll send you the link. Okay, after. okay. Yeah. <laughs> then what would you say are sort of the three kind of key takeaways that you would like to share with everyone who's listening? I'm, I'm not sure like if we should do this from a furniture perspective or from an entrepreneurship perspective. Maybe the entrepreneurship perspective is more interesting here or it's at least sort of more broadly. <laughs> sure, yeah. So maybe the first one would be that it's entrepreneurship, like there's this whole concept of entrepreneurial freedom. And that's a total lie, by the way. I mean, it depends, depends on what you're doing, of course. But in, in most cases, that is that is totally a lie. And entrepreneurship, it, like when I compare it to sort of the, some of the finance jobs I've done, it's more peaks and valleys. The peaks are higher, the valleys are lower. And it's mm-hmm. super, uh, it's extremely rewarding, but it's tasking. And I've been talking to a lot of other founders and the sort of one big like downside is that if you're ambitious and committed, there's this constant nagging, whatever you're doing, if you're on the beach with your girlfriend, you're at a restaurant, you're at your mom's birthday party, it's like 80 mosquitoes in your ear constantly. And you could always be doing something to bring the company forward. So there's mm-hmm. a, there's this noise uh, that's constantly gnawing away at you. And other founders, they've I've talked to the founders at Swapi, for example, the sort of secondhand iPhone company and Endemic Sound in Sweden. They all say that yeah, you can't get rid of the boy. Like they they try to they try to get rid of it, but some of them like uh, they try to do extreme sports or something to sort of get into a flow state and forget. Yeah. That. So you have to be maybe it's extremely rewarding. But you have to choose something that you, I mean, that's a bit of a cliche, but you really have to choose something that you're excited about because otherwise you'll, you'll probably quit. And it's really, really rewarding if anyone listening is at all inclined towards entrepreneurship, like just do it, just try it out. And, and um, if you choose something that you're super excited about, then like Monday is going to be the best day of the 
of the week probably but it it is uh, in in many ways it's simultaneously a trade off yeah yeah it's, there's a i think there's also to a small extent not massively but i think there's a small uh genetic component with it as well right where i think that like there's certain like you can just have to an extent a little bit of bad luck with your genes and you're just going to feel a lot of negative emotion naturally yeah right yeah and then uh then it can be really overwhelming to a big extent but it's also something that can be trained obviously right so i don't think it's just like it's a whole nurture versus nature debate right oh, at yeah. the end of the day it's really it's always both and it makes a bit more sense to believe uh, whatever is helping you at the end of the day right absolutely so it's, uh, it's quite interesting as well yeah and that's a super compelling topic to myself as as well and we could talk about that for for a long time but what i think really helps if you look at like big personality traits it's obviously neuroticism if you're high in trait neuroticism that's it's probably going to be tougher and something that really helps at least helps me personally i'm really high in like trade openness curiosity openness and just being yeah just open for new ideas that's something that i found it super beneficial nice yeah good that you read personality books as well <laughs> yeah 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 i mean that's yeah. when when i get the time to read that's that's the type of yeah it's I, one I, of my favorite topics too because you can look at uh, how some of these traits relate to work performance right and you can make much less biased decisions in regards to your hiring and how good they are yeah, to an extent yeah. right there's some traits where you for example i think conscientiousness right which is like to those who don't know right it's basically the ability of someone to work hard in a structured manner etc mm. etc right just to be a diligent human essentially yeah and obviously if you give someone a survey they're just going to say because it's like an obviously good thing that people know employees are looking for right mm -hmm. uh, employers are looking for sorry and like it's really tricky to value at the end of the day right but there's some where yeah. it's where it's not clear if it's objectively good or people can't really like you can't just uh, answer whatever uh, in the test and then like you know the, the right results come out so we have the soul internally we have the soul like testing structure for people <laughs> before we let them in essentially where it's like they get a specific value assigned to everything and then overall they get like a number yep. and then if the number is higher than a certain amount they just basically go through right so it's yeah uh, yeah so it's like a funnel or a, or, or a cutoff exactly yeah, yeah. yeah totally and by the way caveat like i'm by no means saying that yeah I've, i've super optimized my work i'm so effective every day no i'm like i mess up every day in terms of my my time use i use time uh, i mean i commit some part of the day to stupid stuff that i should have done otherwise so it's a constant learning process and uh, totally like myself I'm, i'm trying to improve here a lot and but yeah so just want to offer <laughs> offer that caveat what are some of the sports the more extreme ones that uh, people were recommending to you <laughs> yeah this I, i mean some like what i like to do i i like skiing and uh, oh, same yeah like off piste skiing is something i i do myself like yeah. I, i try to do like two three three trips a year obviously i live in finland it's way different if you're in germany and you can just drive a couple of hours to the alps so there it's yeah. a bit different but yeah some people do skydiving some people do do rock climbing this type of stuff is and these are probably the most common one one guy does paragliding and paragliding as well so it's usually like one of these things yeah that's pretty extreme yeah yeah i'm too i'm too risk averse for this i just do running here and there <laughs> 
We're like a MBB, like management consulting co-founder pair. So we talk a lot about the 80-20 rule. We try to apply it as best we can in our own work. Obviously, it doesn't always help, but it's a really useful lens. I feel like when you're looking at your work and approaching it from a sort of data perspective. So the 80-20 rule, it's it's a super like awesome concept and it applies basically to everything in life and everything in the universe, like 80% or, or 20% of the, of the trees have 80% of the mass and 20% of the stars have 80% of the mass and 20% of the patients take up 80% of the resources and 20% of the customers that you bring like 80% of the sales, this type of stuff. So what we really try to do ourselves and encourage everyone to do is just when you're working at something, ask yourself like, what's really the driver behind this? Should I now spend two hours optimizing these ad campaigns, pictures and really, really polishing them? Or should I try to use that time in a more scalable, more productive manner, sort of going at the grass root of the problem? So, so that's something that we try to promote internally and, and do as, as much as we can. And if you can adopt that sort of methodology, then uh, you're probably going to be better off than if you, if you don't look at things from that perspective. Yeah, I also have a rule for myself where if it's, if it's like a thing that may lead to an incremental improvement, uh, I usually don't do it. Yeah. It's like there's things that can lead maybe to a drastic improvement or for sure to a drastic improvement or at least worst case to a, to an incremental improvement, but at least it's sure, right? It's a yeah. sure thing. That really helps me as well to kind of keep my my time organized in that way because otherwise it's it just gets really messy, right? Because there's so many things to do. And as you said, you have like to an extent, like this constant voice in your head, right? So mm-hmm. like you just got to have some kind of filter to apply to it where you can say, okay, like here I should listen to it and here I should probably just ignore it, right? It's very, it's very interesting because I'm also seeing uh, a lot of people just kind of doing whatever they feel like to an extent, right? Or whatever feels good yep. to them or whatever their yep. emotions dictate them. Yeah. Um, and they're just not getting the most optimal outcomes that they could be getting otherwise, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, totally. And still, I mean, uh, with all these points, maybe it goes back to the entrepreneurship and, and leadership and communication and expectations setting. We should be as ambitious as we can. We should try to make our team as inspired and working as efficiently as possible. But on, on the sort of flip side of that coin, it's good to keep in mind and be like partially forgiving. We're all human. We all mess up. We're not like rational robots. And there's always going to be sort of a spillover. And it's, it's good to keep that in mind as well. At least I try to, to oh, find yeah, for sure. some, some semblance of balance here. Yeah, because it's, yeah, like people are in software, right? And even if you have yeah, a piece yeah. of software, sometimes yeah. there's a scenario that can't process it. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Makes sense, yeah. And especially if you're in a field where it's, uh, or like the strategy you have, the mm -hmm. approach you're taking from an operational point of view, not strategically, but operationally changes a lot. Yep. It really, like you can't be like crazy process driven at the same time, right? Like you have to optimize, but like you can't really put that much process into place either because it may change in six months or so, right? Like it's pretty interesting in that regard, yeah. Okay, cool. Any last words? We have two, three more minutes if you want. <laughs> I mean, I, I think we touched on some super interesting uh, topics here. If, if possible, and if the if the podcast develops nicely, happy to be on a second time in the future, of course. And maybe we can book a chat and talk about personality traits or. or oh yeah, for sure. I was thinking about some, it as well. Other time, and and of course, uh, happy to hear your insight. Like one thing, maybe a third takeaway is that like try to get help wherever wherever you can and don't assume that you're you know things the best but you should try to learn from people who are better at certain things so when you speak with other people in the industry and when you're doing sort of the consulting work here is like any ideas that you might have feel free to send me a message and pitch it over and of course, can't um, jump off without plugging Muke one more time. Uh, like, super keen on hearing any feedback. If someone is listening, wants to give feedback on the concept, or even wants to work with us in some type of way, you can find us on Muke. That's M J U K dot com. Muke dot com. Nice. But thanks for the invite, Jan. This was a super interesting discussion. As I mentioned in the very beginning, this is super useful for for myself as well, because. I get to sort of segment my own thoughts on this topic.